You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.metagroup.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is September 8th, 2022 at 7.37 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Um, and... Uh, I've been feeling quite light and happy lately, and I thought that it might be that we're not spending enough time on positive things and, and generally enjoying uh, being alive. Uh, so I thought that we would talk a little bit about that. Um, the um, I notice it quite a bit lately because of the contrast between losing Dan Brown and the subsequent months of really grieving about that and being just uh, terribly upset and sad and um, and the thing about loss in that way not so much that uh, it should be different than it was or that it's unfair or any of those kinds of ideas in play they really weren't it wasn't that it it seemed um the way of this human condition that we're all in. Um, I know that I, I harp on this, uh, or at least people tell me I harp on this incessantly, that uh, um, life is quite short, uh, uh, and it takes a long time to get anything to happen. Uh, and, and then uh, uh, life is over, each of these little lives. Uh, that we have uh, in uh, course three incarnation there's no limit to that but i have trouble with a solid sense of that really being more than a balm but my friend molly who died a couple of months ago uh or maybe longer now it's hard it becomes a kind of wash uh one of the last things she said was that she was very excited for what was next, which I thought was quite an interesting point of view. Um, Dan got right into the to the rituals of the things that he needed to do to prepare for this as, as soon as he uh, was aware that it was going to happen. And I was even surprised by the intensity of the feelings, um, the sense of the loss. Uh, I notice in, in uh, my own life, uh, people that you really click with that really make sense to you, who really see you and get you and appreciate you aren't that many. <laughs> and so when you find one, uh, they're valuable and you really should try to to you know, do what's necessary to keep the relationship going. And I think uh, having had that with Dan uh, and then him dying, um, uh, I dropped into a, a kind of de depression, uh, sense of sadness and loss, and then and that was too much into depression. And I'm not uh, that depressed the, these days, uh, normally, uh, my, uh, my childhood, of course, my early life, my 20s, 30s were, were characterized 
by these long episodes of depression. And I had actually forgotten what that was like uh, in my um, late 20s. There was a period uh, uh, of depression that lasted for about two and a half years that did, I did end up in the hospital around that. And, um, and uh, but uh, through this practice and uh, through really uh, um, in addition to the practice, but also seeing clearly the nature of an ethical stance in the world and adopting an ethical stance and actually attempting uh, to uh, engage in that uh, routinely uh, um, took me out of that into a place that that uh, I would say for the last 20 years or so has been really largely free of depression. Uh, and so it was an unpleasant <laughs> reminder of what that experience is like. Uh, and now it's a kind of giddiness that I have that it's that 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 part of that process has come to an end and uh, the liveliness of, of being alive is back and the joyfulness of uh, all of the little things, including Lucy's commentary in the background. Can you hear? <laughs> Christian. I'm curious if you feel like a big sense of continuity with your much younger self because like your mind states the way you were living was probably so different or do you feel like that was like a different person um you know it's interesting i i uh, i i'm i'm working on a book and uh i'm i quoted uh uh joan didion let me see if i can pull it up quick uh along those lines um, yeah. I think we are all well advised to keep on a nodding terms with the people we used to be, whether we find them attractive company or not. Otherwise, they turn up unannounced and surprise us, come hammering on the mind's door at 4 a.m. of a bad night and demand to know who deserted them, who betrayed them, and who is going to make amends. Brilliant. Um, what I find differently about my sense of reflecting back on myself is that I like myself i like uh uh however flawed and and uh how many bad choices i made i see in me this this natural innocence that was really trying to uh express myself and uh and understand the nature of the world and that all of those uh, attempts um, have uh, ultimately led here uh, 
where I am now, which is pretty good. So I, uh, I understand that in, in a way, uh, as, uh, as if we uh, were, if we could frame it as a discussion of exploration, um, looking for the things that I needed to know, uh, often in the wrong place, but still underneath that was this desire to understand something and to find something out and actually to be uh, useful to the, the people that I, I, I cared about. I wasn't so great at discerning who to put my energies into and, uh, um, and often uh, was taken advantage of in that regard. I wasn't uh, on the side of people who take advantage so much as, as uh, on the other side of allowing people to take advantage of me. But I think it's the same mechanism. You can't have one really without the other. Um, but with exploration, of course, you try to find something out and uh, you do or you don't. And But what you do find in there is often a redirect into the next place to look. And so you move from place to place, uh, keep gathering the information that you need to know uh, to be able to, to understand the nature of it. The, um, what is the nature of this human condition? Uh, it can't be, of course, that you'll live forever or that everyone will remember you because that almost never happens. Uh, Jake? George, what would you say are the domains of exploration? When you use this word exploration, what are the sort of domains of it? I'm having a little you... trouble hearing you. <clears throat> when you use this word exploration, what are the domains of exploration that you've mapped out? What is, what is that? Well, what do you do uh, and um, during the day and how meaningful is what you do? Do you know what meaningful is for you? Not for everybody. There is no great meaningfulness in that sense, I don't think. Um, so if you look at it from the, the attachment perspective, you have, you're an infant and you have a caregiver who attends to you and they uh, uh, connect to you empathetically. They understand your feeling process. They understand what you're drawn to and what you're not drawn to based on uh, observation. They, they, they see what you're good at and what you're not good at. And they encourage you towards the things that you're good at in a in a good enough environment. And they celebrate uh, uh, your capacities and encourage you to use them in a good enough environment. And as you uh, are drawn to different things and, and, uh, and engage in the activity of different things, uh, and you begin to understand the value of them to you or the, or the lack of value. Um, you know, it's as, as simple as, oh, you like strawberries, but you don't like raspberries. 
So let's get you some uh, so some strawberries. Um, you know what I mean? Did you have a, a caregiver who was attentive to you in that way? When they went to the store, did they get raspberries because they didn't know that uh, you liked strawberries better? Uh, did they get raspberries because they preferred the raspberries to the strawberries? Did they have a, a set of values that they placed on the things that you were innately interested in? And uh, did they, or did they impose their own list of things that they thought should be meaningful for you? I often uh, think back on the, on the way that I was raised and um, sometimes my interests and the interests of my mother's overlapped, but we never did my interests. We only did her interests. Um, and if my interests were outside of what her interests were, we didn't do it. Um, and so uh, it always created this sense of um, dullness in a way in the things that I was asked to do. I could do them, I could do them to the point that I could maintain my interest, but it was terribly dull and I felt a longing often for the things that weren't allowed. I don't know whether I would have felt the same intensity for the things that weren't allowed had I been able to do them, but I was not really allowed to do them. Um, so I didn't know that. So then what you find in a situation like that is that your exploration develops the expectation of dullness. And so you're less likely to be so uh, actively engaged in it. You recognize that there are certain goals certain minimums that you have to hit and you can hit them, but there's no uh, uh, satisfaction in doing it for yourself. It makes you fit into the family system and you get that kind of uh, reaction, but the reaction of a caregiver in praise uh, for something that is still dull for you isn't going to energize an exploration. Um, I, I, I uh, always asked my parents about these things uh, in a kind of uh, bitchy way, I would think. Um, uh, not in, in an aggressive way, but I would say, uh, it has not escaped my attention that you would pay for this, which I didn't want to do, which cost the same as the thing that I did want to do. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm not really understanding why you made that choice. And my mother would say uh, something along the lines of, we were trying to steer you in the right direction. Um, for who? <laughs> so, uh, Christian, to, to kind of steal Jake's question and then ask a leading question. Um, do you think that there could be sort of moral fundamentals of meaning? And I'm thinking particularly like, maybe my personal dream is to become like the world's greatest juggler, but you know, that's not particularly pro-social or maybe it is, but I also see that there's a possibility of me going and trying to solve climate change. 
which affects everyone, you know, and that's kind of like maybe the, the Theravada versus the Mahayana thing of like, I'm going to get my own liberation versus I'm going to postpone it for, you know, to, to go help all the other people. Um, so like, could, could you formulate the way you think of meaning in terms of that kind of dichotomy, which I'm always thinking about and like, I, you know, I'm always thinking about climate change and I don't want to, but it seems like it's not something that, you know, and there's other big issues, pressing issues. So like, how do you think about meaning in those terms? Well, I think that we're talking about uh, periods of a life um, when you were a child and uh, you declared that you were going to become the world's greatest juggler and you were juggling the family oranges uh, were you able to do it or were you not able to do it and it was the consequences that you kept dropping the fruit on the floor and, and damaging the fruit so that it would become unedible and uh, could your uh, caregiver then have swooped in and said we need to preserve the oranges um, and is that different than um, what an adult might think about the world and what to do uh, there is, of course, the practicality of, of how do you live in our culture as a householder. Um, if you wanted to work on climate change, uh, could you do that and organize it in such a way that it was remunerative enough that you could uh, maintain yourself? Or would you have to do something else in conjunction with that so that you could maintain yourself? Um, and the, the process of solving all of that is the exploration uh, of how to make a life so that I have time during each of the days that I have to be really engaged in the things that provide meaning. And then all of the other things that one does to maintain a life as a householder fall into place. Well, you know, have to get up, have to... Uh, take care of the body, have to show up for the commitments that you've made. Uh, there's a hierarchy of uh, need there. There's a hierarchy of meaning there. But if the central piece is the exploration and what you find out about the things that you uh, need to know and that you find fulfilling and finding, do you have a chunk of time each day that you can do that? How have you organized it? Um, if you don't uh, have a, a, an understanding that exploration is going to lead to something valuable, then maybe you don't make much time for it. Or there's space on the weekend. In our culture, of course, there's space on the weekend, although is there, and then there's space to go on vacation or however it is. But none of that is going to provide that sense of meaningfulness in, uh, in a daily uh, life in the daily experience of life. Uh, we have, a, um, in our culture, um, it's affluent and technical uh, distraction becomes one of the great uh, um, consumers of resources, even though it barely produces much in the way of meaning. So that we, we get ourselves and we create these uh, structures of the lives that we have, 
and we organize them in such a way uh, that we get through them. But uh, if if we have to use a lot of distraction to emotionally regulate, that consumes the resources that we might then use in a different way. So, um, yes, that's an interesting idea. How would you do, how would you organize your uh, efforts at climate change and at the same time have time to juggle? <laughs> I'm thinking you could do it. Jake? So the main thing that you've given feedback about when asked about exploration is how it's related to the attachment, how the attachment experience shapes our sense of the capacity of right. what we can pursue in meaningfulness. Right. Is that it? I was just, just checking about that. I had this weird thought as well when you were talking that um about technology and the role it plays in our lives like um <clears throat> i find that i i have meaningfulness in my day-to-day -day life i pursue things of meaning that uh may not necessarily seem very meaningful just like uh taking a walk looking at the mountains looking at plants observing nature or going to see a pagoda stuff like that and then I noticed what I do is I take photos of it and I post it on Facebook because I don't have attachment. I don't have attachment relationship in my life. And so I noticed that how that is actually not, <clears throat> I just point, wanted to point that out or bring it up how technology is sort of in a sense replaced attachment for some people because we use it to share our exploration but it doesn't actually give us back what we need, does it? Um, I don't know that we have a complete picture of that yet. I, um, I was talking to some, someone about a study that for 80% of people actually, uh, those kinds of technical uh, frameworks of social media uh, are actually expansive in terms of social connection. And for 20% of people, it's like an Armageddon. It just, they withdraw entirely from actual connection to other people and it becomes all screens. Uh, that uh, one of the things about uh, social structures, of course, is how do you organize them and track them? And because uh, our uh, capacity as uh, unaugmented humans is so limited, we tend to have to let the tertiary social networks fall away. But with things like uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram and those things, you can actually structure them so that there's a, a system that does it for you instead. And so whereas uh, you wouldn't have the the still maintain connections to college or high school or elementary school. You can now with social media, and that tends to make it better. And then also because a lot of what social media is about is promotion, you get invitations to a lot more things that you would get. And if you can get yourself to go to them, uh, 
you have an enriched social life as a result of that. Uh, if you get caught up in the artificial reflections of people's posts, <laughs> that could, is where the, the downside comes in, where you feel that your own life is not really uh, adequate, um, not understanding that the posts are all manufactured and, uh, and don't represent a reality so much as a, <clears throat> as a, a shiny version rather than the whole picture. Um, so, you know, Dunbar's new book is out uh, and he's sort of tweaked the original model that he had, which was quite interesting. Um, still the same A, B, C, D structure but he's added ease to it in terms of closeness and he's divided the c category into close c's and the rest of the category but you know we have these brains which have these clusters of neurons which are meant to be engaged in social networks complex social networks and uh, and that's how this human condition is organized, this body that, that we're in. We're supposed to be doing that. And so when we look at the, the different things that get in the way of that, those things uh, can be addressed and the skill sets that you, you need to be able to function in intimate relationships can be learned if you didn't learn them in, the, uh, in the, that early crucible of childhood. It's a bittersweet process um, in the sense that you learn them now and you can reflect backwards then, uh, as I was saying earlier, uh, and see that uh, the decisions that you made, um, the choices that you made uh, were affected by the conditioning and the view that you had at the time. And that when you get a new perspective, you can reflect on the older perspectives and see whether they were useful and or they weren't useful. Um, but all of that's lost to the advantage of the new perspective. And uh, then you have the new perspective, which opens up uh, a, an area of life, but it's a different area of life than it was, uh, you know, as I like to say. I'm going to my 50th high school reunion. If I knew now, then I could have ruled high school. <laughs> <laughs> but I sure didn't. <laughs> uh, um, what is it to be happy? And how is happiness different? Um, I guess I'm still in that, having popped out of my depression uh, now I'm happy again. It's it's quite exhilarating. I find the experience of it, and um, and yet being in that process of grief, uh, uh, it is being in the the sadness uh, and the rawness of the loss, and not turning away from it. These are skills that you learn. This is a 
really one of the fruits of practice is that you can be in intensity uh, and uh, work toward equanimity with intensity and understand the nature of uh, the distortion of the view that comes from it and not take it on as something that's absolute and unchangeable, but then notice that process. I did uh, also detect uh, a, um, a, a criticism about uh, the intensity of the experience uh, with the admonishment that it, it, it isn't good practice to uh, connect so deeply that the process of loss would be so uh, destabilizing. And I, I would uh, push back on that pretty hard. I think that you should go all in <clears throat> and engage as much as you can and understand that if the loss is sudden enough that you're going to be knocked sideways uh, and that if you don't allow that, if you protect yourself from being knocked sideways, you also blunt the uh, engagement, you blunt what you get out of it and so that I I think that you should engage uh, as much as you can in each of the moments that you have. And then as the moments end, uh, or the accumulation of moments end, then be in the, the loss of it. Because otherwise you're just um, bunting meaningfulness, limiting it. Jake? Do you think that's a different position than what you find typically in the community of Buddhist meditators? Because it seems like what you're espousing is what you, you kind of find from teachings or teachers in the sort of indigenous, with the indigenous worldview, but in the in the Buddhist society, every, everyone seems just kind of removed and blunted and don't react and uh, don't, don't feel entirely. It's, it seems like really kind of different. I mean, is that connecting for you? Or? Um, so attached, non-attached uh, in that Buddhist sense, um, I, I really think of it as a misunderstanding of, of that concept. Um, you know, uh, uh, when you attach to the flow of sensing experience, you create conceptual reality, you fixate it. When you cling to something because you don't want the version of conceptual reality that you've created to go, or you resist because you don't want the, the version that's coming, um, there's a lot of suffering in that. But isn't, isn't that essentially what attachment is? I mean, in the psychological sense that we, we use it here, isn't, isn't that a prerequisite for attachment? Not uh, in the Buddhist sense, not upadana, but I mean, psychological attachment. Well, isn't that process? You engage it when you, you feel like you love someone, you, you want someone, you want to be supported. Or... Um, I think that there's a, a biological component to this as well. Um, when you find somebody and you engage in a relationship with them, 
and you begin to move attachment needs toward them, you're moving them in uh, the conceptual realm, but you're also growing a brain that then thinks like that. And then when the object is lost uh, and there's no one to connect to, the brain produces sadness in response to that. Mm -hmm. If you have an intimate relationship with somebody that's gone on for a long time, there's lots and lots of these connections. And so it's just not a little pop of sadness, it's a wave of sadness, a torrent of sadness mm. that comes in the beginning. And then you have this process of gradually taking the attachment needs that were expressed toward a lost object and moving them to somebody new. That's the process of grieving where you move the connections, the, the, and they're literally physical in the brain, right? You just can't make your mind up about it because there's a structure there you begin to gradually move the uh, uh, those attachment connections you know attachment uh, connections are are complex you have the experience of the present moment that forms you have the idea of the intention and action that you should take you track the outcome of that but all of that is included in this, uh, who do I share this with? As you were saying earlier about taking photos and posting them on Facebook, part of the process of exploration, part of the process of understanding includes the expression of it. Yeah, it's like that's where it finds its, its most, it, that's where it becomes most meaningful is when you can share it, isn't it? So then you go through the process of the day and you look at something and in that process as it naturally unfolds, you end up with a pop of sadness because the person that you would express it to isn't available. Uh, and then you take that sadness uh, as a vital energy of healing uh, and use it to propel you to connect to someone else. And that would be a beneficial expression of that. Whereas if uh, the, the sadness became overwhelming and and instead you withdrew from the world in response to it. That would be an afflictive experience. Do, do you think there is the possibility of taking that sadness and using it as fuel for a sort of transmutation of that emotion, whereby you don't attach to someone else, but you, you honor that sadness, but you use it as kind of fuel for this sort of transcendent movement on the path is that possible or is that just kind of shutting down the attachment system well um there is so much to be gained by risking intimacy with people and risking the expression of what you're finding out and one of the ways that we understand and know uh, the value of these things is, is the way that they're reflected back to us. So if we go into that early experience of infant and caregiver, the way that we understand the sense of who we are comes from uh, not internally necessarily, um, uh, only if you have an absence of somebody, um, but they the experience of the caregiver of the infant is then reflected back to the infant and the infant begins to understand 
their nature in that reflection. So that as you become an adult and you, you uh, grow up into these intimate relationships and you find somebody who you feel a sense of safety to, that you're willing to uh, reveal yourself in these and offer a look, then what's reflected back to you uh, allows you actually to deepen uh, uh, the understanding that you have of yourself. So when you're talking about moving down the path, if you have around you these people that can reflect back to you, the discoveries that you're making, you can make greater sense of them. That's what I would say. And so that it's vitally important that you have people who are also on the path so that when you make these expressions to them, they have some reference that they can use uh, some un, un, some capacity to understand what's happening so that when they reflect back to you what their experience is you can use it it's valuable in terms of helping to understand what you need to know uh, and that if you don't have that it's very easy to get caught up in distortions and not have any way of evaluating whether that's where you are So attach, attach and know that, uh, that the loss of that would be uh, devastating and still attach. Uh, every moment is lost. There's that, that tiny pop of sadness and um, uh, but also know that this process of resolving those losses unfolds naturally and that that energy of sadness arises uh, to uh, facilitate moving from somebody lost to somebody new and that if you go with the flow of that sadness it just happens naturally and that if it isn't unfolding in that way and, and you get caught then this is the place of the clinging that we're looking for the place of the aversion that we're looking for and so that we can come back into a, a process of equanimity as this unfolds. So, so you just need to like, when you have sadness or loss, you just need to kind of let it move you until it transforms into connection. Is that right. what you're saying? Something? That's what I'm saying. And to come into that happy state that we are how's that <laughs> let's uh, uh, uh do some um heart practice uh any particular vein of it <clears throat> Let's do self-compassion. Compassion, okay. So uh, go ahead and settle in, taking your uh, heart practice posture. So how did that go?
Good. Um, so what's happening? We just started a level two. If you want to jump in, there's still time. Um, we don't usually shut it off hard until after the second class. Um, there's a retreat, a residential retreat happening in the first week of October. Um, it's at the Seven Circles uh, Center. It's the last one at the Seven Circles Center. They're closing. Uh, COVID has uh, unfortunately pushed them over the edge. Um, so, and then not sure what we're going to do after that. So if you want to do one of our uh, attachment retreats, come and uh, sit with us. It's, I think, eight days. Um, we're going to start uh, some classes for Central European time in November, and then do a, a, um, a level two uh, for Central European time. Uh, this winter and then in the spring we're going to do an in-person retreat in Utrecht uh, which is in it's about 30 minutes south of Amsterdam in, in the Netherlands uh, so uh, and then uh, I'm going to go to Berlin after that so if you want to come on a field trip that might be fun I think um, uh, I offer this class on a Donna basis. Uh, Donna is the Pali word for generosity. Um, uh, any amount is really helpful to us. Uh, there's a link on the website. It helps support me, helps support the work as Meta Group is doing. We really appreciate it, but we also appreciate your practice. So please come uh, and I will see you soon, I hope, somewhere on the path. Bye now. <laughs>